This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1207. Here I am, sitting in my tin jan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And our podcast title is Pod Control to Major Megan. (laughs) (laughs) There's a theme here. There's a theme here. Yes, it's uh, uh, one small step for a jan. One giant leap for Jankind. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we'll be looking at uh, the movie First Jan, no, First Man, later on. And uh, also um, Doctor Who. Yes. We, it is the season for mm. for who being. And we do a weekly and we're one week behind. Yes. So, so no, spoilers no spoilers from this morning's episode or... This afternoon's episode, what, however you want to look at it. So the recently released one, it's but we will spoilerific go through last week's. It's all very, it's all very timey wimey. Anyway, um, we've got. Uh, I want to let you know that Joe Elsendor, our podcaster of about a year and a half, um, is moving on up into the wild blue yonder, mm-hmm. bigger and better things. And we'd just like to say thanks very much for your support and assistance, Joe. Yes, thank you. We are entirely grateful for your diligent and podding endeavours. And it's not entirely a thankless task because we just thanked you. <laughs> <laughs> Live long and prosper and may the force be with you always, Joe. Thank you very much. Uh, I am actually working for a bit of a backlog of podcasts at present, but expect to be up to date around about the end of this week, hopefully. All right, now, uh, Star Trek Discovery. Yes, it's back, is it? Not yet. January. Almost. January. Uh, and they've been been—they've had trailers. And amongst the trailers, I've noticed that they've got... Their Klingons now have hair. Ah. Now, this was always going to have to happen to get them into up to speed with the classic Star Trek era. Yes. Because um, it's ten years before Captain Kirk's... Enterprise, mm-hmm. uh, although the Enterprise herself has now appeared with Captain Pike at the helm. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but they have to, the, the Klingons have to get, um, uh, to get to the, let me see, the Star Trek the motion picture era, they have to get um, hair mm-hmm. and crests on their head. Yes. But for classic Trek, really they just need to have hair. And, and look certain look sort of like um, Mongol warriors, basically, mm. or what they conceived of as that when they originally invented the makeup for back in the nineteen sixties. Uh, in Star Trek Discovery, the Klingons have no hair, mm. but they have the crests. They have that kind of r- ridged. Yeah, yeah. So they've explained what happened. Um, there's a whole canon of things that involve augment viruses and. Gosh. Um, Klingon fusions where they, they, they genetically engineer themselves by mixing in human blood. There's all sorts of complicated things. And backstory. DNA. Yeah. <laughs> Forward story, backstory, who knows now. But what they've said about the Klingons in Discovery in the first season is that they'd shave their heads 
They'd shaved all their hair off because they. this is what Klingons did when they went to war. I guess that makes sense. It makes sense. There is a, you know, there is a, a certain, not, not a Vulcan, that would be insulting to the Klingons, a Vulcan logic to it. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, maybe this is something that the particularly um, religiously fanatical Klingons and, yeah. uh, did. It also kind of, you know, I can think that General Chang in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, he had a bald head. Mm. But that might be just... Personal um, preference. Klingon pattern baldness or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that kind of makes sense. So it's, um, yeah. <laughs> I like when they try to merge in time. Yeah. Like try to get the timelines lined up a bit. It's just about impossible. <laughs> it's like when in the X-Men, the new franchise now that um, James McAvoy is bald now. They're trying to get all that going. He said he'd be, because there's a new Star Trek series with um, Patrick Stewart mm. <laughs> set 20 years after The Next Generation. And um, James McAvoy said he'd like to play a young Picard in flashbacks. <laughs> well, why not? We've got a, a precedent for that. <laughs> yeah. They don't even look that alike, but their energy is similar. Yes, that's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> moving, oh, they've also got um, Michelle Yeoh coming back as well as Great. the Empress. Love her, uh, and it's possible that Jason Isaacs might appear too. And obviously, he's either going to appear in flashbacks as the Mirror Captain. Oh my God, these are spoilers, but you know, yeah, been a you, long there's time. been plenty of yeah. time, uh, and he'd probably come back as the original. Captain Lorca, mm. if they manage. I don't know. It's so complicated. It's exciting, though. It is. Yeah, I've, I've been. I really enjoyed um, discovering. Anyway, uh, speaking of shows, a week after Netflix announced the cancellation of its Marvel mm. series Iron Fist, so they've got no season three. It's also cancelled Luke Cage season three. And you were quite surprised by this one. Yes, this has soured my Christmas. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I was actually, and. I've read lots of different things. You know, there's, these are only rumours and mm. cross-currents. and What's uh, the word on the street? Well, you know, we're all wondering. This is a question. We're all wondering how much this is to do with Disney having its own streaming channel coming up. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I think the rights for this have laps, are lapsing from Netflix. Yeah. But beyond that, um, there also may a rumoured to have been um, creative difficulties. Yeah, sure. So that old creative difficulties yeah. thing. But this was to do with... Because um, it was quite advanced. Mm. So what we've got left is... Obviously, Daredevil is on at the moment, season that, three. Very quietly. I don't know how long that's been out because that dropped very quietly. This weekend. It usually, um, you know, promotes itself to me because I've watched them. You know, it knows what I like because they oh. know everything. But <laughs> it didn't show me it at all. And even when I went to find it, it was quite... Buried. It was quite hard to find, which I thought was surprising. Yeah. I did get the notification from Netflix that it was on, but... But it didn't put it in the banner or anything for me. So, yeah, mm. I mean, they've, they've quietened, down, quietened down a bit with all of that. Yeah. But hype aside, Daredevil Season 3 is um, very good. Mm. Um, How far in have you gotten? Obviously, um, with Daredevil being killed at, in the end of yes. Defenders, um, they've got a new Daredevil. <laughs> it's Tony Stark. <laughs> as neat as that would be, mm. and there is a hot rod red theme sort of running along there, more or less. <laughs> Sadly, not the case. No, there's not. <laughs> Look, obviously, Daredevil isn't dead. No, and we all need. And they actually deal with how he survived in the first fifty seconds. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> I think they, they had that, a, a snippet in one of the I can't remember what, but they they had a little mm. pre. 
pre-teaser. Yeah. Um, so, look, it's, it's about Matt coming back from that. I just want him to just slow down. Like He does have I to think slow he, down a bit. He needs to just take a little bit more care of himself. He needs to heal. <laughs> This, this, this man has more uh, free medical care from all of the good citizens of Hell's Kitchen than you'd imagine anywhere would be possible to get that in the United States. He's, I mean, his poor ragged body, anyway. Yeah, there must have been, must be a healing factor in there somewhere because nobody could no. handle that sort of oh, stuff. Oh, no. Anyway, um, uh, there is a lot of more Catholic guilt. Well, it's all Catholic guilt. I've only watched the first <laughs> episode. Uh-huh. Um, and I quite, there's a nice. Uh, relationship dynamic there with one of the nuns Mm. i liked that but they really lay it on quite thick and sort of show the direction of what path he's on now which is very much this screw it all kind of mentality these these are fighting catholic priests and nuns too these are like old test (laughs) i don't know what they are they're like uh the 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 priests that you used to get in the movies in the 1940s yeah yeah they'll 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 uh they'll raise the kids from the street by um teaching them boxing yeah exactly and begora they'll do that too they'll (laughs) give you a right right hook and so they'll like that but which is actually quite interesting so Mm. this is this is the thing about these street level marvel shows they've been doing that yeah you know they're um they're pulling you into the either the the, uh, the culture in um, in Luke Cage's world, or uh, kind of you know the, the the Asian gangs in it's all gang related. It is all gang in um, in Iron Fist and and now here with the Irish Catholic gangs. Well, and, and this is it. Like I think it's it'll be interesting to see the fate of kind of the other shows yeah. now that because it was sort of a little package that they kept. Yeah. bringing out new ones and they you brought it all together with the defenders so it's interesting to see now but it's how it's going to be treated because of the way contracts work and people you know the actors move on because they've got to make a living mm. are they going to be able to get iron fist and luke cage to appear in say jessica jones yeah which has still got its next season coming up which i think jessica jones for one is one i'm really looking forward to because it left in a good spot mm. um are we going to see, you know, we could, could we do like Heroes for Hire as a spin-off series or, uh, you know, could we have Daughters of the Dragon? Yeah, I mean, you know, who knows what? With Misty and Colleen teamed up. You know, that's, it's, yeah. it's perfectly legit. And that, that was really a, a star moment in the, um, yeah, the last Olympus series. And it could be that Netflix is kind of, I mean, they put money, they've got a lot of money and they put it in where the audiences want to watch. Like, they really yeah. ride the waves of audience preference. Like, that's why they've got a lot of true crime stuff on there right now and possibly the superhero stuff dropped off a bit in viewers' ratings and so they've just pulled the money for, like, ruthless ruthless they are. But Punisher too. Yeah. That's coming up as well. So it makes me wonder where it's going, whether it's all going to just drop off. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, three seasons, quite detailed and heavy-duty seasons, seem yeah. to be enough, I actually feel. I mean, if the next season of Jessica Jones is a real corker mm. and then it got cancelled, I don't think I'd be that upset if they really used that last season. No. Because the first two have been pretty strong. I've, I've you know, the suggestion is take them onto the movie screen, these mm. characters. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you could probably do that. But you know what? They're, they're, they really work. I'm, I'm in two minds about movies now. With, yeah. with such high-quality television available, um, I actually look at movies as short stories as opposed to novels now. Yeah, and I mean, I think something like Jessica Jones really needed TV series to unfold all yeah. of that stuff. But you're right. I think it's interesting how we view the kind of narrative stuff we're watching now. Mm. And even if, say, 
in a a ten part series, an average ten part Netflix or or Stan streaming series, mm. uh, even if two of those episodes are padding, yeah, still that's eight roughly about eight hours of drama. Exactly. And it's it gives you a lot more texture and depth than one movie can do. And something like Maniac couldn't be done as a, a film. No. Um, because part of it's it... It's episodic. Yeah, and part of it is that switching the American one and the, the original, I suppose. But, yeah, I don't know. You need that kind of long-form episodic mm. structure. So You know, the Deadwoods, the Breaking Bads. Mm. It's, um, it's an interesting thing. It doesn't, it doesn't mean the movies don't work. No. You know, I mean, if you're going to do Avengers Infinity War, that is a movie. That's something yeah. that you need big spectacle, big exactly. screens for. But there'd be room for a... I, I don't know, a Defenders movie or something like that, I feel. I think so. Anyway, that's all speculation at the moment. I'm really sad to see Luke Cage. But yeah. the other thing about Daredevil Season 3 is Nicholas... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Mr Fisk. Yes. yes. He's around again. Yes. I think he's really great, yeah. that character. His character is um, even more convoluted in this mm. one as he deals with being in prison. Yes, um, and the prison deals were being having him there. Yeah, goodness. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think they've actually once again managed to nail it with season three. So far, I haven't binge watched it all. Um, I'm not a big binge watcher in terms of I just don't can't watch it in a whole weekend. It's yeah, just, it's too much for me. I don't want to do that. I find that I've gotten less and less actually as well. I'll mm. watch ch- like I'll watch chunks of about. Maybe four or five is a maximum. But yeah. these days that's not a whole series unless you watch something from the BBC. But, like, <laughs> generally that's maybe a third or, or half. I, I think I max out at about three in a session. Yeah. And even, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to just watch one too. Depends what it is too. Like, I think they reached a point where when I was catching up on Game of Thrones, there was a, a limit of <laughs> How much blood? what you could, like, <laughs> absorb. Um so, but then other people I know can watch whole seasons of Game of Thrones in one sitting. And I um, also watched uh, the latest uh, episode of The Good Place. Oh, yes. I've yet to <laughs> dive into the new episodes, actually. So I've got that assigned to look forward to. There is to. a character called Larry Hemsworth. <laughs> <laughs> it's all set in Australia this season so oh, really? far. Yeah. And huh. it, is, it is hilarious the way they play with that. Of course, because that's where Cheaty's studies yeah. something teaches yeah yeah right, right. yeah it's all okay. very self-referential but in this delightful way and it's, they've changed the location and, and a bit of the paradigm once again mm. uh, and it's still working great mm. and the characters are just so much fun how often can they do that do you think oh I don't it's know. quite masterful it is it's a wonderful show um, that's on Netflix as well yes. anyway uh, let's have um, what I will call a bit of a uh, a teaser, uh, mm. and this is appropriate to both our ec- upcoming discussion of the latest Doctor Who episode and to First Man, the Man on the Moon film. Uh, it's the New World Symphony, just the opening to it. Um, you know, um, this is Dvorak, of course, but <laughs> it's uh, also something that they took to the moon on Apollo 11. Huh. Um, Neil Armstrong used to play this, this himself in his little band that he had earlier on. There's a, actually a reference in the film to that band, but this um, he took it on a cassette and mm. played it on a cassette player on the way to the moon in, um, in the Apollo 11 mission. So I thought, we can just play this. It's pretty cool. Mm. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Steve Squires. I worked on the Mars Exploration Rovers, Voyager, Magellan, and Cassini space missions, and I wrote the book Roving Mars. So if anyone should understand Zero-G, you'd think it would be me. Nah, sorry. Zero-G, science fiction and fantasy radio on 3 FM. Here we are, after a little bit of a ramble through the new world. Symphony, which is um, Dvorak, of course. Now, this is um, uh, relevant to uh, First Man, as well as um, they'll talk about Doctor Who, because they played it uh, on a cassette player on the way to the moon in the Apollo, during the Apollo 11 mission. And the new world in um, question there was the United States, or... Um, was it the United States then? Oh, yes, of course it was. And um, New World is what they encountered in Doctor Who last week as Jodie Whittaker, the new Doctor, <laughs> goes to... Um, where was it? What was the planet? Desolation. That, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, spoilers from last week's episode. Episode two? Mm-hmm. But not this week's, <laughs> which is dropping today on iView and... Um, and elsewhere. Uh, now, this is episode is the second of the season eleven. I don't know what that makes it in terms of all the Doctor Who episodes. Mm. You know, uh, umpty dum dum, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Megan and I both watched this. Yes. Megan is new to Doctor Who. Yes, indeed. So Very new. I actually, like, I actually like want your perspective on this. It's called Ghost Monument or mm-hmm. The Ghost mm-hmm. Monument, and it's directed by Mark Tonde. Tonderay, written by Chris Chibnall, the showrunner. Um, Tonderay is a British director and former DJ, also an actor, and a writer who did Day of the Dead Bloodline and worked on the 12 Monkeys TV show Paranoid Time After Time, Lucifer, been a director on that, Gotham and Black Lightning, and also <laughs> directs um, crime drama The Five. You know, you're telling me before, Megan, what true crime? What What's the difference between true crime and just a, a crime drama? Well, I guess true crime, I would think of it more as like um, shows like Making a Murderer and The Staircase and things like that that are on Netflix. That was the kind of thing I was thinking about. And uh. Evil Genius is another one. So they've put it after Making a Murderer was so popular, they've put a lot into that true crime stuff. So it's usually based on real stories. Uh, okay. And it might be, or even things like I would say some of the OJ docos would fall into that because it's based on even though it might be a fictionalised account. Um, and then, yeah, and then that's sort of different as opposed to, to a crime drama. That was a parenthetical question, actually. <laughs> it, wasn't, well, it just occurred to me. Uh, in this episode of Doctor Who, the 13th Doctor, she accidentally um, <laughs> transported herself and her yes. entourage of free. I mean, we saw that coming. Into deep space. She was looking for the TARDIS, uh, but the TARDIS wasn't there. No. Oops. And they were spaced, basically, and survived it because they got picked up. Mm. You know, hitchhiker's Guide quickly to the enough, Galaxy. Yeah. yeah, very quickly. So they didn't explode or anything. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, so there, there they were. They'd been picked up by space racers. That's racers who were uh, pitted against each other in a competition in order to win a prize of whatever the strange mm. amount of money it was. Yeah. <laughs> but more importantly, freedom and safety for their yes. families, res- yeah. prospective family, yes. families. So there was a, there was a money and a carrot and a stick sort of mm. approach there. Uh, it was filmed in South Africa. Ah. Um, you could tell by the, uh, 
the enhanced landscape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, although they apparently um, the person who was in charge of the race didn't actually get to go to South well. Africa. He got stuck in Cardiff. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, all right. Um, so we have uh, Susan Link- Lynch playing a character called Angstrom. Uh, one of the two racers, and she was uh, a vampire, an interview with a vampire, and one of the victims in From Hell, huh. <laughs> uh, amongst other things. Sean Dooley played Epso. Um, he was in the British horror film Salvage and uh, was a police inspector in all three parts of the Red Riding trilogy. Um, he was also in a horror movie, The Woman in Black, and was in Broadchurch too. So, <laughs> And I actually know him because he's a voice actor too, um, Sean Dooley. He was in um, an adaptation of Ursula Le Guin's The Father's Shore. Huh. Uh, the actor I referred to who didn't go to South Africa was Art Malik playing the, the uh, what would you call it, the race MC, the, yeah, the guy who's in charge of, of it all. And he is a Pakistani-born English actor who has played so many Islamic extremists, mm-hmm. which he finds terribly droll. Tiring, yeah. Yeah. Um, although he was actually um, an Afghani Mujahideen ally of James Bond in Living Daylights. There you go. <laughs> uh, and he's been in oh, so many of those things. But he's in True Lives. He was a villain in that, you know, so right. typecast there. Uh, and we only heard the voice of Ian Gelder, who was Mr Decker in Torchwood, Children of Earth, but you will know him as Kevin Lannister in Game of Thrones. Ah. And he was the voice of the uh, the remnants. Oh, cool. Yeah, so, okay, yeah. They're on this, this desert this desert planet. There's not supposed to be anyone there. They've got to trek across the planet yep. um, to find the ghost monument. Mm-hmm. Once they find that, the winner of the prize is the person who gets there first. Yes. And I actually felt that they... I, maybe it was always going to be that way, but we all we knew that it was the TARDIS that they were after... Mm. From the earliest moments in the show, really. Would you have preferred that to be a later reveal? But well, I don't know because I don't know how they would have pulled it off. Because I would have guessed. Yeah, <laughs> so. and also they needed some kind of incentive to make that journey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The With the lo- other two. To the other two. That's right. That's a good point. So th- there were many obstacles thrown in their path. There mm. were uh, robot guards mm. and the remnants. And uh, I thought this was so cool, cool because Doctor Who's made a habit of, of finding very many primal ways to scare us. I was talking about this last week. Yeah. You know, don't blink or the weeping angels will get you and the silence will rob you of the very memory of their presence. Um, shop window dummies, mannequins, plastic furniture and wheelie bins, they're going to come and get you. Um, you know, there are cyber mats on the ground that you can step on and it will steal yeah. The whole really primal sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so we're presenting here the murderous remnants of planet desolation, which are exactly what they sound like. They're talking shroud-like creatures that flow over you and smother you and mm. taunt you while they're doing it. Yeah. And they somehow kind of have this persona kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Very well done. So this is really, really, really primal for costumers mm. because your fabric stash has not only been listening to your every word... And it's gonna <laughs> about s- to get you. It's going to strangle you in your sleep. Yeah. So I thought that was just perfect for costumes. And it's like smothering your nose and mouth. Yeah. So I thought they're actually a very creepy villain. I don't know if it would work if they could, you know, run it Mm. again, like the Weeping Angels have been done. But um, Yeah, sure. Maybe not. But anyway, I thought that was a great primal villain for this early episode of season 11. Not going too, like, 
too all in with the villain. No. It's just something. Yeah. yeah. And um, I did find the race, the, the space race, a little bit cliched as an idea. Yeah. A little bit derivative. Um, but they actually managed to, to pedal through that quite painlessly. Mm. Um, and then they did the strange thing, and these are all spoilers, of course, as we say, we're, we're spoiling last week's yes. episode. Um, they vanished them, the, the, the two contestants, after they'd learned to work together. Yeah. I was fine with that. I wonder if they'll appear again. Well, see, that's it. It leaves the door open. Yeah. I mean, that was a sort of a little too nice a package to wrap that up in, yeah. I thought. There's yeah. other shows that would have treated that differently. But I was kind of happy that they were then – that storyline was resolved and then we were focused again on, you know – Getting to the, the TARDIS. The getting back to the TARDIS. So I was I, – it seemed all too convenient, but I was sort of okay with it. So for, for, for the fans, it was the new TARDIS interior, which we all want to see. Yes, yeah, so I picked that up from the uh, <laughs> the dialogue. Yes. They're very good to new viewers, I think. They're really trying to let you make it quite clear what's new and what's not. Um, how different is the inside? It didn't even look at any old it's photos. It's quite different. Okay. Um, the, uh, the structure, the walls of it, uh, once again, echo that circular motif that all TARDIS have mm-hmm. in, a, in a way. Um, and also the – but the crystalline stuff, that's um, not, not entirely new, but I've not seen crystals on such a large scale. There have been very organic-looking TARDISes before. Yeah, right. One, ones where they based the um, – all of the, the the consoles and the uh, the stanchions and the and the, the platforms and stuff on coral, okay. like it was kind of grown. Uh, in this case, it's crystals. And I don't know if anyone else has thought of this, but since the doctor's carrying a sonic screwdriver around that's got crystals in the top of it, mm. that reminded me very much of that. Yeah, I, me too. That's what I thought. Normally, the doctor gets the sonic screwdriver from the TARDIS, but not always, but mm. from the TARDIS itself, it creates it for them. Oh, maybe it's, like, flown the other way. Well, the TARDIS is a very pernickety thing. Maybe it's kind of, yeah, maybe it's, like, a little bit jealous. It's spruced itself <laughs> up a bit. It's going, oh, you've got a you've got a sonic already. Well, I can do that too. Yeah, interesting. I wouldn't put it past it. The old girl's kind of um, funny that way. But um, I don't I don't know. It's not... You know, what am I going to say? It, it's not so far my favourite design, but mm-hmm. I've seen so little of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, give me some things to take place in. There. Yeah, yeah. I think I prob- but I do like the consoles, um, elaborate uh, physical physicality, the the devices in it that are all there. Yeah. For you know that you can play with. And, yeah. You know, there's an egg timer. Yeah, that was cool. Is that not? No, I haven't. And uh, maybe maybe it's been done before, but that was really cool for a time. I like that. Uh, and the biscuit dispenser. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> I liked all those touches. I thought that scene was... How much time historically do they spend inside the TARDIS? <sighs> Look, it really depends. Um, there are episodes where the budget's been running out. There's a famous one uh, uh, going back in time in his brain to Tom Baker. Um, uh, an episode called uh, The Invasion of Time. And they were running a bit over budget in that one. So they decided to set uh, a chunk of a story Inside, in the TARDIS yeah. where they were being chased by Sontaran warriors and they really just went and shot in the BBC. Yeah. Like in the sick bay. Because <laughs> you know, it's more about the travelling out into the other worlds. Yeah, but it's not, not like exclusively so. There have been ones 
uh, more than that one, mm. uh, a two-parter where they spent most of it in the tar- – you know, they, they, they've yeah, done it. depends. So it's an important location and always it's it's their ship. It's mm. a springboard to adventure. So yeah, you, yeah. you do need to know what's there's, going on. There's a certain anchoring. Okay. Mm. So how did you feel overall about um, Ghost Monument? I quite liked it. Mm-hmm. But it also is because I think part of it is there's enough – in there, like what you said, that storyline is a bit old hat, mm. but there was enough markers in there that it was quite familiar to me for something that's new. I think it was all things that I recognised. Not that, you know, I need every show to be familiar, mm. but I think when you're delving into something new like this that's established, I've watched so much sci-fi like this before. I was like, oh, this is fun. Like, I know what this journey is like. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe it's too familiar. I'm not sure. But I really enjoyed it. I did. I like the way that the doctor handled the problems that were put in front of her. Yeah. She she used a very, you know, a very familiar sort of um, shoot from the hip sort of thing. Yeah. But um, there was compassion there. I quite like the way she's playing. I mean, I don't know how it differs, but I quite like the character. It's, it's, she's full of enthusiasm and confidence and, and she seems to have shrugged off some of the darkness that's yeah. been um, part of the doctor for a while now since, um, mm. gosh... Well, forever, actually, in the new Who, there's been a lot of that around, um, but particularly in Peter Capaldi's era as well. Yeah, but there was some moments there where you could see she could definitely play it with a more deeper mm, mm. Um, uh, angst. I also <laughs> like the way that um, Graham, the um, the older companion, Bradley Walsh, is interacting with uh, Ryan. Mm. You know, he's really likable. I think Graham as yeah. a character. Yeah, he's the he's the older guy, and he's the is he the granddad or the the, yeah, the granddad, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, um, of Ryan through marriage, yeah, and um, I thought that was a, a lovely touch that he was trying to still play the mm. the granddad, even though they're on an alien planet, yeah, and they all kind of took it in their stride, which I'm sort of glad of because I would have been a bit fatigued if they'd spent a large chunk of that episode, the second one, mm. with them. Oh, what's going on? Oh, I'm so upset. Like all that is boring. Well. This actually makes kind of sense in the Doctor Who um, canon because um, people on Earth are aware that there are aliens and thereby Uh, alien worlds. Okay. You know, finally they couldn't explain it anymore. Yeah, right. (laughs) They couldn't cover it up. And so pretty much everybody on planet Earth, I don't know exactly what the state of play is, but they all know that there are aliens out there. So it's not such a leap. No, no. Um, And and they're all aware that they've all got a ticket to invade Earth at some stage or another. And I did like touches like when they're inside the TARDIS and she says it's also a time ship that Ryan was like genuinely... You know, that's awesome yeah, that's kind of clever. thing. Um, and that kind of, yeah, I liked all of that dynamic. Yeah. It's, it, mm, hmm. it felt, it did remind me of shows like Firefly and whatnot where it's, you know, you go on a different adventure and you get to know kind of the core characters and stuff. Yeah. But I did really like it, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's good. I'm pleased. You can say if you don't like them. <laughs> no, no, and I, I will. I will definitely be honest. But, no, I and I'm interested to know, like, in terms of, as a fan and all the Doctor Who you've watched, like where it sits in terms of beginnings of a new season, like new Doctor. Well, she's straight into it. Mm. Um, there hasn't, there's no dealing with old business. Yeah. So far, at least. Yeah. Um, there's no mention of, let me think, uh, although there are similarities in the themes and the tropes mm. to many, many other episodes. Like that first episode, you could dissect and just, and just say, this is that trope. This is that one. This was in the episode. Uh, but 
I fe- it feels fresh to me, mm, you know, yeah. and and that's nice. Yeah, after so long since the nineteen sixties. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think that's good. I think I guess they've taken the opportunity, like we were saying last week, to attract some new viewers and also tailor a show that will appeal to both. Oh, and they so. didn't. Uh, none of the companions said it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside because what that that's what they usually say about uh. TARDISes, you know. <laughs> All right, uh, and where do we... St- oh, the next episode is um, going to be uh, called Rosa. Okay. And it, it's about Rosa Parks. So we're going back to the... Ah, to so the a time of, travel piece. Yeah, of segregation in the US and and really, really actually a socially relevant story yeah. right now. I'll be really interested to see whether, like, what they choose to focus on for that. Mm. Well, obviously, um, uh, Ryan is... Um, uh, a person of colour, mm. so that's going to play in that in that time. Um, we're going to also see, you know, women are treated differently in the nineteen yeah fifties, sixties, sixties ish. Uh, yeah, so female and yeah, the Doctor being female now. Yeah, so um, and then this is also going to have echoes in the Trump era too. So a I'm purposeful be, choice, I think. Yeah, so I'm going to be very interested to see how they handle that. Of course, there'll be some people who got up very early this morning and watched it and go, I know what happened. <laughs> but we'll wait a week so then we can get into it properly next time. Yeah. Um, track two, mm-hmm. I think, was the one we'll go to next on our little CD. Uh, and this is by um, Segan Akinola, who is the new composer for Doctor Who. Lovely. And this is from a film called Way Up, and it's called Ascent. So I thought that would be a... Listening to it, I, I like the sound of this. Hmm. Broadcast mode. This is Crichton, the service android aboard the Starship Zero-G on 3 R FM. SOS! SOS! Mayday! Help! I am being held captive by rogue makeup artists who want to cover my face in plaster and latex rubber. Panic mode. Get me the hell out of here! Yeah, we had, um, what were we playing then? A bit called Ascent. Ascent. Yes, by the composer of the new Doctor Who series of music from that, whose name is Segan Akinola. That's a lot of new credits, new composer, yep. new TARDIS. New Doctor, new, new doctor. companions, everything's new. Yeah. Yeah. So it must be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because new is good, right? New is good. <laughs> I, I, I've been, had that drummed into me all my, my life. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, advertising um, Dodgers and the Mad Men, <laughs> uh, looking at First Man, which is also a 1960s product, mm-hmm. uh, although it is actually based upon a book called um, First Man by James R. Hansen, which is actually a an authorised biography of Neil A. Armstrong. Um, Now, the other week on October the 11th, um, we heard about a uh, a Soviet... um, Sorry, Soviet... ah, (laughs) Soyuz Mm -hmm. um, rocket, which was launched from... by Roscosmos, and that had two um, flight engineers on board... And it failed. Mm. It got, got was going up down range, and they had to they had to abort the mission. And the two crew were picked off the top of the rocket ship with, with an escape launch mm-hmm. system, which is a smaller rocket that just yeah. pulls just the peels off. away. Yeah, yeah. And they were very lucky, but you know this is space rock real rocket science. Yeah, and that works by having backup plans, and the backup plan worked. But that. That particular type of backup plan has only been used with a manned mission once before wow. uh, 
um, back in the uh, in the eighties, I think, and that's actually pretty amazing. Yeah, and I was quite surprised that more hasn't been made of this in the media. It's like this was like you know, nineteen eighty three was when the uh, the other time that happened, and again that was, was a, a Soyuz um, um, launch vehicle. But um, it's quite amazing. Mm. Space travel is not routine it never really will be it's always going to be some form of difficulty until yeah. we build a space elevator and it's just like going in pressing a floor um, you know it's it's mm. a dangerous thing and that was really brought home to me when i watched the uh, the first man movie they've really tried to make it look like this is this is not easy mm. this is a very difficult thing to do it is the unknown like you never really know what's going to happen mm. Um, even though you can plan and calculate and, and simulate and, and test and, and they did a lot of that and, and that was the other thing I got out of because um, my, my experience is now mixed I've, I, I watched the film and that inspired me to go and read the book right which means first off big tick there <laughs> any any biopic that inspires you to go and read trot more trot off and grab the book yeah is either so dismal that you want to know what the real story was or else inspires you. Exactly. And you want to know more, yeah. It was the latter case. That's good. It inspired me. Uh, it's directed by Damien Chazelle, who did, uh, who co-wrote 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I thought was a considerably mm. good film. Um, and uh, this is written by Josh Singer mm. as well, who yeah. um, was one of the uh, editors and writers on The West Wing. Oh. And the Utrecht credits don't get much better than including that. And I hadn't realised Damien Chazelle directed this because him and Ryan Gosling worked together on La La Land, of course, which almost won the Oscar but did not. Ryan Gosling plays Neil Armstrong. Um, You probably know more about Ryan Gosling than I do. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see, what's your experience of him? Um, Not a whole lot. Uh, Blade Runner 2049, Mm. Lars and the Real Girl. Mm, and that's yeah, about that's it. a very good one. Yeah, that's about it for me. Interesting. Did yeah. you see any of his like? Did you see La La Land at all? No, I haven't. I suppose you. It's not really. <laughs> no. L.A. Confidential, of course, but not. La well, La. <laughs> I mean, he was in Gangster Squad, which was a moderate yes. um, gangster film, to be honest. But yeah, I mean, you know, he's um, been all over the place in the last few years. Mm-hmm. But he did in his early days. He did a lot of really good indie stuff, and I think he's still really watchable. And this film, and he's a, he's a he's a good um, physical match. His face, and mm. he, he's very good for for Armstrong. Yeah, I agree. Quite well for that kind of midwestern. Yeah, like kind of a all American corn fed, especially <laughs> yeah, like and that era as well. He's kind of got that that energy. But he's also made Gosling's also made a um, a bit of a career out of playing the. Uh, the guy with the right stuff, almost, you know, that that the the, the sort of pragmatic. Uh, oh yes, little, he's you know, uh, a little bit reserved. Mm, yeah. No, he's an all-around gentleman mm. and hot stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a perspective I had it had not occurred to me to uh, to go to. No, everyone um, loves Gosling. He's he's all the rage. Uh, Claire Foy plays uh, Janet um, Sheeran Armstrong's first wife. Mm-hmm. And I'd forgotten this, but Neil Armstrong actually did get divorced in the 1990s uh, and moved uh, moved on to a second wife, but there was um, tensions between the two. Mm. And that actually comes out in the film. Yeah. Um, and in the book, of course, in the, uh, the biography. Um, but, and it's important to document that because that's all part of the process of an astronaut's life in this yeah. case. And I was looking at the statistics for that um, and a large number of um, 
Apollo astronauts, um, their, their marriages came to grief. Um, obviously, NASA liked people to be married and straight down the line in yes, of course. terms of their family lives and all that sort of stuff. But 13 of the 21 lunar astronauts, their marriages ended in divorce or separation. So that was um, that was quite uh, an interesting thing to find out in the book, First Man. Yeah, right. So I sort of swapped backwards and forwards between that. Obviously, this is this is the story of Neil Armstrong. Yes, it's very much kind of a biopic. Yeah, but not about, about Armstrong. Yeah, not about the space program. But he, that's where he works. Yeah. So <laughs> he just so happens to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously. The entire book is not going to be in the film. Mm. It isn't. There's not even an attempt to do that. They do try and blend important elements in. But, you know, there's nothing about his childhood, his um, early fascination with aviation. Although you can see Mm. encoded in the film models that are sitting in his It's a little hints and Easter eggs for people who know. But if you didn't know, you might think that his kids had made those. You know, so there, there's things there, but uh, you have to look for them. Um, they, they cover his early uh, uh, test flight tra- um, uh, things with uh, high-speed flight, like the X-15 rocket plane. I mean, that's the good stuff too. You really want to get that oh, concentrate. Yeah. Mm. The X-15 was oh. a kind of a precursor to the space shuttle in a way and, and helped pioneer a lot of that sort of hypersonic edge of space flight, how he handles that. And, they, that, you know, they give you enough so that you know what sort of a a pilot he is, which, yeah, is right. which is bloody good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because he actually had a lot of accidents. <laughs> and, but he survived them yeah. and he was cool in the crisis and, you know, it sort of recommended him as he went on. Mm. The other key thing in this uh, film is that they're making it a family film. It's very tied up with the sad fate of his uh, young daughter, Karen. Right. Who, um, well, this is history, so I can tell you that she had a brain tumour um, and that God. did influence him and he bottled that up. Yeah. The, the grief from that. Um, and you can see that tearing at his, his, his life and his wife's mm. um, life, their relationship. And, uh, and indeed, this may have spurred him on to try out for NASA because mm. he wasn't working for NASA before there. Um, they do uh, something about his um, his Gemini 8 mission because he went from um, the X-15 to Gemini 8 and the whole pro- – it wasn't on the Mercury program uh, – and about his other friends. And they, they talk about a lot of the, the deaths during the program. Yeah. There were three astronauts who were killed in a, in a launch pad fire, um, other astronauts who are just shuttling around on jet fighter planes. They used mm. to almost as taxis and as training uh, and who die – in, in accidents there. So it was actually a, a very costly program in terms of human lives. Yeah, dangerous stuff. So, so all of that is, um, they don't stint at uh, working working that into the story. Um, there's a little bit about um, uh, Armstrong's um, personal, how he's personally affected by all of this. Mm. And it's, it's, it's telling and it's used quite strategically throughout okay. the film. So I felt they did the did they did the job that they had to do with this. Yeah, they did not really point out. There's a there's a bit where he goes off to see, um, and this is a minor spoiler. He goes off to um, to the uh, what would you call it, the selection panel for NASA. Sure. And he's in the corridor outside, and most of the people outside are wearing military uniforms. You know, they're yeah. Navy, Army, Air Force, whatever. They're all pilots and all that sort of stuff. He's an engineer and a test pilot. And he's a civilian. Yeah. And one of the um, military types is uh, another civilian. You know. And that's funny because they don't mention in the film that he was a p- 
a jet pilot in the Navy in the Korean War. Ah. So he was actually military at one stage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you won't know that from the film unless there's a plaque on the wall somewhere <laughs> and I, I didn't spot that. But, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, but it was important for him to be a civilian at the time because they wanted a civilian um, because... The times, they were changing and, and the Vietnam War was raging and the civil rights movement, all of these uh, worked into the story. going on. A very turbulent times and NASA wanted a, an astronaut who wouldn't be quite so controversial as just mm. another soldier or a sailor or an airman, you know. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So I felt that that was um, very well depicted. Again, very, very strategically, just popped in there yeah, and you yeah. back away from it but you got what was Quite going subtle. on. Quite subtle. Yeah. And of course the, the the Apollo 11 mission is covered in this but not in huge depth yeah. as you would from um, say a television miniseries like From the Earth to the Moon or... More about Armstrong. Yeah. And his, his perspective. place. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's a, a good approach and I think that's what it if that's what it sets out to do i think that's a really interesting because there's been a lot of stuff on the space program and other things and i think if you can intermix that with a more personal perspective Mm -hmm. especially someone who's like a historical figure who i would consider him to be oh absolutely um yeah okay would you recommend it yes instantly i i thought this was a a roger that movie in terms of the air now maybe scale of zero g yeah Yeah, absolutely um i instantly got what they were doing and you know there's a there's a thing if you know a bit about the space program and space procedural if you are what Mm. one facebook page calls space hipsters yeah which is a great page by the way and you know um, has everybody astronauts and flight engineers and people attached to it cool rick armstrong neil's son says it was a good movie oh that's good (laughs) i think that always helps yeah that helps uh and um, there are things you can pick on it, like mm. any 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 movie, any Hollywood space film, but yeah. a lot fewer, I thought, than Good. in say than in uh, Gravity, <laughs> and and a megaton fewer than say Armageddon. Yeah, well, <laughs> again, like they're that. not that. Armageddon's... The bar's low for that one. <laughs> yeah, but some intentionally others, so. And, and in fact, it's more accurate than the right stuff. Oh well, which had quite a few things going. And again, I think it. that movie had its focus elsewhere. That so. did indeed. Um. I think you should watch more Ryan Gosling films too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I think you should watch Drive. I think you'd like that. All right, I'll put it on my huge list of things to watch. Good. Let's have a little bit of a... Tra- Actually, that, we're going to be wrapping up very soon. I can see that. The time's going to run us out. Um, as I said, I give it a, uh, a Roger That um, thumbs up because mm-hmm. this movie, I think, is a great space movie. You'll be... If you see it... If I, if, I recommend seeing it in IMAX. Yeah, cool. Because okay. it's immersive. The, the rocket launches, the X-15 flying, all of that's it's very visceral. Cool. It's designed to be. The sound design is awesome. Yeah, nice. Um, you know, you will... Uh, I have heard... That, uh, is, is it accurate that the rockets were so shaky and the sound was so loud and there were so many odd noises, so many bangs and pops and mm. creaks and groans? Uh, from what I can, I've read, yes. Yeah. You know, um, I've not ridden in a rocket, so <laughs> I would believe it too. I think, yeah, they, they often say that it's not as it's not just a nice, quiet bubble. It's no. terrifyingly loud. <laughs> no. Other subsequent missions and other sorts of things, yeah, maybe in the space shuttle and that maybe a little no. bit more advanced. Yeah, they're not working on soundproofing when they've got to worry about getting everyone back alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so so yeah, great film. I really think, and the music great. in the film is is awesome too. Mm. Um, use that word three times today, awesome. But um, the the music. 
is a, a wonderful blend. And you have to know the 60s music. Yeah. So there's a little there's a little bit of a feel of John Barry sort of epicness, like, you know, James Bond. Yeah, nice. Um, which, of course, had its own sort of space sort of things going on in it. And also theremins. Okay. You've got to have theremins. And they do in this film. We played a big long track from it last week, which was... Um, the Landing. The Landing. So we won't revisit that. Uh, and everybody's playing that track too, by the way. Whenever mm-hmm. you hear... It's a good one. On soundtrack shows and so on. Um, Again, I thought I'd tap another bit of music here that was played during the actual mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm going to play this from... um, Oh. um, Music Out of the Moon. Okay. It's by Dr. Samuel J. Hoffman, the man behind the theremin. (laughs) <laughs> one of the men, anyway. And um, they again, Armstrong took a cassette of this music up on Apollo 11 and played it. Now, it's not his song, not the song that he danced with, with his, to with his wife in the film, but um, it's still a, a hell of a piece that, that says 60s but also gives you that um, um, space-age feeling as well, as a theremin is bound to do. And it's Moon Moods <laughs> featuring Les Baxter, but by Dr. Samuel Hoffman with the machine, the theremin. This is Kim Stanley Robinson, author of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Yeah, I faded that out a bit early, um, as, as lovely as it is. Uh, just give you a taste of, of that. And we're going to go out with Mr. Bowie with Space Oddity because that, to me, is welded on. Oh, we have to. <laughs> we absolutely have to. For this. Um, <laughs> Riffing off 2001: A Space Odyssey, uh, and also the other, uh, also the other piece of music I associate with the moon landings, along with um, Thus Spake Zarathustra. So, Mr. Bowie was Space Oddity, the classic version. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.